0: turn in our Bibles to Psalm 115 this morning for our sermon Psalm 115 as our kids are dismissed Uh, we'll be reading from Psalm 115 verses 1 to 11 this morning if you don't have it uh, in front of you it'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow along there we'd invite you to turn there if you do have a copy of the text in front of you though as we work our way through it together this morning Psalm 115 beginning in verse 1 we'll read down through verse 11 together The psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Or, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They have, and, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This is God's Word. Let me just say this morning from the outset that I've been battling this head cold all week long. Uh, I went to the doctor on Friday, got COVID tested. It's not COVID, uh, so I don't have corona in the pulpit this morning. uh, Sharing it with all of you. It's a head cold that's been going, so I just want to get that out of the way. Um, But So if I have to clear my throat every once in a while, that's what's going on up here. Uh, But several weeks ago now, we launched the Next 5 series, uh, looking at where we're headed together as a church family over the course of these next 5, 10, 15 years, how the Lord is directing, moving, and leading. And so far in that series, we've talked about reaching our neighbors and having a gospel witness here in the midst of this city that God has planted us in six years ago now. We've talked about raising disciples and continuing to see people's character and convictions formed into the image of Christ, that they would become Bible-saturated, Bible-literate people whom the Holy Spirit is working in to see them reorder their loves, right? To put Jesus as the primary affection and loyalty of their lives. We've talked about... Uh, launching leaders and seeing other churches planted, pastors developed, ministry leaders brought in, invested in, and sent out. We've talked about maturing stewards, seeing us take those next steps of managing what God has entrusted to us in a way that would honor Him. We've talked about expanding our generosity and being a part of what God is doing here. But all of this has been leading toward this week as we talk this Sunday about glorifying God. Glorifying God. That's where all this has been headed, okay? And so that's why we're in Psalm 115 together this weekend. And this weekend is commitment weekend. As we consecrate ourselves, commit ourselves to the Lord and what He has burdened our hearts with. And leading into this weekend, we actually had an advanced meeting with some of the leaders within the life of our church. Some of those who have been here, long-term members, they've been serving in various capacities, elders, deacons, life group leaders, those types of folks who have been serving uh, year in and year out with us here at Redeemer. And we asked them if they would consider making an advance commitment to what the Lord was doing uh, before we came as a church the rest of the church body came uh, to make their commitment to the Lord uh, to see how He would use what He's entrusted to us to bless this community He's planted us in as we reach our neighbors, as we raise disciples, and as we launch leaders. All right, and so as of this morning, we've had 15 families, a total of 15 families who have made an advanced commitment. All right, and we don't have a drum roll, so you can just get over that. Uh, but we had a total of 15 families make an advanced commitment for a total of $217,400 that has been pledged thus far. And so I want to give, yes, that's, that's, worth, that's worth it, right? giving thanks to the Lord for the ways that He's providing. Right? And so, as we think about those 15 advanced commitments for that total, we're almost halfway to our goal as we continue to trust the Lord to provide. Okay, and so this morning as we turn our attention to where all this has been headed, to us glorifying God, a God using us to make his name famous, to make his reputation grand, glorious and great in our community, we turn to Psalm 115 together. Because all across the pages of the Bible, right? From Genesis to Revelation and particularly here within this psalm, right? We're told that this there's one resounding truth Okay, I've I got three of them for you this morning, but the first one is this. The, the resounding truth that I think jumps off the pages of the Bible and here in Psalm 115 is this, that there is one who is worthy of glory. One and only one who is worthy of glory. The consistent testimony of the Bible says there's one person who is worthy of glory. Now, glory in the Hebrew Old Testament in that language, it literally meant this. To be heavy. To be weighty. And in fact, in some places in the Old Testament, it refers to someone being, shall, shall we say, right? Overweight. Okay, So there was a fatness, a heaviness, a weightiness to an individual who was full of glory. Okay, And so it referred to somebody's weight it referred to somebody's substance. It referred to someone's greatness. Right? And so you can see very easily how that literal reference can be used, came to be used figuratively throughout the pages of the Old Testament to refer to someone's weight and their worth, their substance and their significance, their greatness and their glory. So when a person is... worthy of glory, right? If this person is worthy as a weighty person in society, they're someone who is honorable. Someone who is worthy of notoriety. They're a notable individual, right? When we think of people who are glorious within our context, Right? We think of people who are substantive. They're worthy of our respect. They're notable. They're people to whom we defer. They're people who seem to be unmovable and unshakable. They are unflappable no matter what comes against them. And the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. There is only one who is worthy of this type of worth this type of respect, this type of notoriety, this type of substance and significance and greatness, and it is God Himself. Now notice, the psalmist says, it is the name of the Lord to which we should give glory. Right, because the name in the Old Testament, we use name the same way in our context, don't we? As well, when you think of someone's name, what do you think of? You think of their reputation. You think of their character. You think of their previous actions that have led to the particular reputation that they have today because of their history or your history with that individual. That's what a name is. Right? It's not just what your parents gave you whenever you were born. All right, but your name carries that sense of reputation. So when the psalmist says, but to Your name give glory, he's talking about God's reputation. He's talking about God's character. He's talking about the way that God has acted throughout history and Israel's interactions with Him. And he says to give glory to it. So it's something that is actually an imperative. Like, You know what an imperative is? It's a a command, right? And so he says, to your name, right? Here's a command, something that we ought to do. We ought to give glory. Now to give give glory to someone, that word literally means give, means to ascribe or to assign. And whenever you assign something to someone, right, it becomes their responsibility or it becomes their belonging. Okay? And so whenever you start, let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Whenever you start a new job in a new office complex, and you walk in the first day, and you meet your supervisor, and they introduce you to all the people who are there, part of the office suite with you, and they say, Here is your assigned office. Right? That's a place that's carved out that belongs to you to conduct the business that you have been hired to conduct. Right? So it belongs to you. When you assign something to someone, you're saying it belongs to them. And so the psalmist is saying, to God's reputation, to His name, would we assign and say belongs to God and God alone is what, church? Glory. Right? Worth. Weight, substance, significance, greatness, renown belongs to the name and reputation of God and God alone. But why? What is it about God? What is it about His actions in Israel's history that have led, has led the psalmist to this confession? And the psalmist gives us three of them in the text. Right? The first one, he says, is God's steadfast love. His steadfast love. Now these two words, steadfast love, show up at least 191 other times in the Old Testament, right? It's the Hebrew word chesed, and you got to kind of like growl whenever you say it, okay? It's talking about God's loving kindness. His covenant love. Right? His loyal love that He's established a covenant with His people, and He loves them with a loyalty that is unparalleled, that is unmatched of any other kind of love that you can possibly imagine. Now this word shows up many places in the Old Testament, but perhaps none more notable than in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. What's going on in Exodus 34? Prior to Exodus 34, Moses has gone up the mountain, received the Ten Commandments, and he's come down the mountain. And what does he find whenever he comes down the mountain? But the people of Israel dancing and celebrating because they had taken all of their jewelry, melted it down, made a golden calf, made for themselves an idol, and said, Israel, here is your God that brought you out of Egypt in slavery and bondage and captivity under Pharaoh's oppression. And so what does Moses do? He shatters the the tablets there on the ground. Right, And then he goes back up the mountain to meet with the Lord. In Exodus 34, he receives the commandments again. And God makes a declaration when He comes to meet with Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God says about Himself, here's who I am, Moses right the people no sooner then did no sooner did i deliver them from egypt no sooner did i give them the commandments to show them what life in relationship with me would look like as they would walk with me no sooner did i did all that for israel that they created a god a calf that they said this is your god that we and so god says i am I am the Lord. I'm abounding in steadfast love. Overflowing with steadfast love. Full of steadfast love. In fact, the steadfast love cannot be pent up inside of me. Right? I'm abounding in it. It's who I am, he says. So the steadfast love of the Lord that's exhibited to Israel, the psalmist says, because of His steadfast love, there is no one No one who deserves glory but God. Second thing is God's faithfulness. His faithfulness. The word for faithful refers to God's reliability, His stability, or His sureness. So God, listen, He not only makes a covenant with His people out of a loyal love for them, but then He does what? He keeps that covenant. He is faithful to that covenant. He doesn't abandon that covenant. He's reliable, he is stable, and he is sure. All of his actions toward Israel, even in their judgment, even in their discipline, is an expression of his faithfulness to the people with whom he had made covenant out of that abounding and steadfast love that he had shown to them. So you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and this is Moses. Right, talking to the people just before Moses dies and before they enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses begins what is labeled in most of your Bibles as the Song of Moses by saying this in Exodus 32 verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. And then he says in verse 4, the rock. What do you think of when you think of a rock? You think of something stable. You think of something reliable. You think of something sure. The rock, His ways are His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Moses says, listen, this rock has been faithful, right? Even though we didn't believe that He had given us the land, because there were giants in it, and we said, no, we can't go take the land, right? But yet, He has continued to be faithful to us as we wandered in the wilderness. He provided us manna. To eat in the wilderness, right? He struck Moses strikes the rock, and the water runs out. God makes provision for His people as they wander, because He's faithful to provide. So His steadfast love and His faithfulness. But then the third thing the psalmist says makes God the only one worthy of glory is His sovereignty. Is His sovereignty? Look at verses two and three of Psalm one fifteen. See, the people of the nations are all calling out where where is their God? Because there's no statues. There's no carvings. You know, there's nothing sitting on their mantles. They have no, no little idols there constructed for them to see, right? So they say, where is their God? And the psalmist replies with our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All that He pleases. Now listen, there are so many instances of this throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you three of them. First of all, in Exodus, God demonstrates His power over the gods of Egypt while the Egyptian gods are powerless. They are impotent. They can do nothing. Right. So through the plagues that God sends to release His people from captivity to soften the will of Pharaoh, right? God shows His superiority over the lesser gods of Egypt, these so-called gods, he shows that he is powerful and able to do all that he pleases. In 1 Samuel, chapter 5, when the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, and they place it next to the statue of this Philistine god, the next morning they find the statue laying on its face with its hands broken off, its head severed, and it's laying prostrate before the Ark as if it's prostrate before the Lord because the Lord has no competitors. Right? Right? Perhaps the best place in the Old Testament this is seen is in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah and the prophets of Baal go up on the mountain and Elijah proposes a little proposition, right? To the prophets of Baal and says, "Hey, let's see whose god is the real god." right let's set up a contest here let's create an altar we're going to dig a moat with water all around it, just to make sure no one's everyone's very clear on what's going on here there was it, they douse the sacrifice with water and they say we're going to petition our gods and which everyone answers and consumes the sacrifice with fire that is the real god and so what happens Right? They set up the, the altar. They douse it with water. They dig a moat around it right? so there's not like a, a, a stray spark can catch it on fire. Right? And so what happens is from morning until afternoon, the, gods of, uh, the prophets of Baal, they dance around. They chant. They pray. They cut themselves. All kinds of things trying to get their God to answer. And then finally, Elijah says, is it, is it my turn yet? Right? And he prays and petitions and what happens? Fire comes down and consumes the offering, licks up all the water, even in the moat surrounding the altar. See, over and over again, God shows that He is is able to do all that He pleases, right? That He is powerful, He is sovereign, He is the one who is in control, right? That fact, that word pleases in the Old Testament literally means what he delights in or what he's inclined to do. In other words, what God has set his, his will to accomplish, there is no one who can stay His hand. There is no one who can thwart His plans. Right? He does all that He pleases, but the gods of the nations, they are powerless. God is sovereign. In fact, we read in Proverbs 21, verse 1, that the king's heart, the most powerful person on the planet, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. To the most powerful human being, God is able to direct their heart toward the accomplishment of His purposes. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules the world. God hath purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God hath plans, and those plans are wise. And never can be dislocated. In other words, never be pulled out of socket. Never be pulled out of joint. God is sovereign. And each of these three pillars that lead the psalmist to say, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory. Each of these three pillars don't stop in the Old Testament, but they carry forward into the New. And they are shining centerpieces of God's work of salvation in Christ. His steadfast love, church, for God so what? Loved the world. That He gave His one and only Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own what love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, rebels, without a cause, running away from God, what does He do? Christ died for us. His steadfast love doesn't end in Malachi, but it picks up in Matthew. And it didn't end in the closing of the book of Revelation, in the closing of the canon, but it continues today as He continues to carry forth the new covenant with His people. His faithfulness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 That if we would confess our sins that God is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The faithfulness, the surety, the steadfastness of God stands at the center of his saving work. His sovereignty, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up to preach and he says, Listen, you men of Jerusalem, right? You did something really bad right you crucified Jesus of Nazareth who was attested to you by God through signs and wonders and miracles yet you rejected him and crucified him and yet that did not happen by some blind chance it was happened in accordance with the definite foreknowledge and plan of God so even in what appears to be right The greatest defeat in all of human history, God was working for victory because of His sovereignty as a demonstration of his steadfast love and faithfulness, his covenant-keeping love that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, whenever God says to Abraham, listen, you, let's enter into a covenant together. And God causes Abram to fall into this deep sleep. And then God enters into this covenant-making ritual that was common in the Old Testament period in which he cut all these birds in half, right? We don't make covenants like this anymore. Alright? But he cut all these birds in half. He just signed document. He Cut all these birds in half. Right? And then he, the, 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 here's how kings would make covenants and they entered into treaties and partnerships in the Old Testament. They would pass through, each of them would pass through those carcasses. This is getting good, isn't it? They'd pass through those carcasses. And what they were saying was this: I pledge to you, and you pledge to me this commitment. We're entering into a covenant together. And should one of us violate the promises that we're making today, may this be done unto us. May we be cut in half. And so God lays it all out. And He says, Abram, we're gonna enter, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. But something crazy happens. God causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And so Abram's over just snoring on the side of this trail of bloody birds. And God shows up. And He passes through for both of them to say this, Abram, if I fail to keep My promise to you, may this be done unto Me. And Abram, if you fail to keep your promise to Me, I may this be done unto Me as well. And at the cross, it's done unto him. Because he kept his covenant, even though we didn't. And so the psalmist can say, Not to us, not to us, but to your name, your reputation, your renown be the glory. Ascribe it, assign it. To God and God alone. Now some of you are asking this question, what in the world does this have to do with the next five? (laughs) And I'm glad you asked. Because here it is, church. You and I, we need to wake up every single morning and look in the mirror and say these words to ourselves, this is not about me. It's not about me. So here, the next five is not about me. The next five is not about you. The next five is not about Rockwall and Hunt counties. As much as we want to reach our neighbors with the Gospel, the next five is not even about future generations who would come in our footsteps and build upon the sacrifice and the legacy that we would leave in our wake. It's not even about them. The next five is not about a piece of land. The next five is not about additional staffing. The next five is not about mission dollars going across the ocean or within infused into our own local neighborhoods. Though all of that's going to be a part of the next five, that's not what the next five is about. Because none of this is about us. Because we are not the ones to whom glory should be assigned. At the end of the day, all of this must be about God and His greatness and His reputation and His renown. Because He's the only one worthy of it. Second point. This one's going to be a lot faster. I promise. Second point. What is it that keeps us from Giving glory to the only one who is worthy of it. And Let me tell you, church, one of the things we need to learn to do is guard ourselves against giving glory to lesser gods. Giving glory to lesser gods. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but in 1972, a man by the name of Ira Levin, he released a novel entitled Stepford Wives right and it was made into two subsequent movies one was released in 1975 the other a remake in 2004 but the basic plot line was the same from the book into both of the movies and it was this right is that the men of stepford connecticut had replaced their wives flesh and blood wives with robots right and those robots right basically did everything their husbands wanted them to do right? So they thought every thought their husbands wanted them to think, right? They did everything their husbands wanted them to do, right? They never contradicted their husbands. They never disagreed with their husbands. They always deferred to their husbands. They always acquiesced, right? They were always just capitulate whatever you want, honey, right? Because that's how they were programmed to respond, right? That was the basic plot line. They always looked right, always dressed right, always cooked right, and always complied with their husbands every single wish because their husbands had programmed those robots to be a reflection of their own image. And listen church, listen, every single lesser God is a God formed in our own image. What we find to be substantial, what we find to be weighty, what can hold us, what we believe is going to hold us down, what we believe is going to give us significance and status and worth, we form gods in our own images. Verses four to seven, the psalmist contrasts. God who is worthy of glory with the little G gods of the nations surrounding Israel. And I want you to look at what he says about these step for gods that were formed in the image of their makers. First of all, he says idols are constructs of human hands. Look at what he he says in verse 4, right? That they are made by men. These, these carvings, they are carved out by craftsmen, or they are overlaid with gold and silver, right? but they are made by the hands of men. Right? And so an idol, listen, is anything right, that we would construct for ourselves. And oftentimes you think, well, an idol is like this little statue sitting on my mantle at home. But listen, idols are not only made by hands, they're also made by hearts. They're made by hearts. In fact, John Calvin said it this way during the Reformation. He said, "Our hearts—they're like idle factories, All right? Because they just keep creating new gods to try to take the place of the one true God, who is deserving of all of our glory." So an idol is anything, even morally good and morally neutral things that you construct and make central to your identity, things that you think are going to give you weight and worth, significance and substance, greatness and glory is something that you have made, that I have made, that replaces the one true God in our life. Second thing that he says is that idols are lifeless. Look in verses 5-7 to and notice something with me. All the haves and do-nots. Right? That these idols, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but don't smell. Hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. They make no sound emanating from their voice boxes. In other words, idols are lifeless, hollow, empty attempts at worth, weight, substance, and significance. Right? There are ways that we try to prop up for ourselves to say, if I if I just have this, then I'll be stable. If I just have this, then I'll be secure. If I just have this, then I'll be significant. But in the end, they're lifeless, hollow, and empty. And they can never provide what they promise. Third thing that he says is that idols dehumanize us. Look at what he says in verse 8 that those who make them, what happens to them? They become like them. And so do those who what? Trust in them. See, church, we become like what we worship. It's a principle. We become like what we worship. See, those who trust, let let me give you some illustrations of this. Those who trust their body image, listen, they tend to be the kind of people who size others up on the basis of their muscle tone or their tan or their hair, right? If, you're, if, if what makes you really significant and secure is your body image, then that's how you size other people up. Those who trust in material possessions tend to size people up on the basis of the cars they drive, the houses they live in, the toys they own, or the things they're paying for, right? Those who trust in control, they tend to size people up on the basis of how well their life is ordered, and whether they can live up to the same, to, uh, live up to and work at the same threshold of standards as that person does. Right. Those who trust in power tend to size people up on the basis of how well they follow orders and fall in line. Those who trust in comfort tend to size people in situations up on the basis of how much sacrifice is required in order to love another person or be involved in an, in an initiative. Right? Those who trust in approval tend to size people up on the basis of whether or not people would affirm them. Give them attaboys and pats on the back. Right? Because those who trust in them, they become like them. See, whatever you construct for yourself that is a replacement for the one true God as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 22-23, to 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we make that exchange of the one true God who is worthy of all glory and say that we are going to give glory to something else, what ultimately happens is we become formed in the image of whatever else we're giving glory to. We become like it, church. We become like it. And listen, if you exchange the source of life, the one true God, for something without life, that has a mouth but doesn't speak, that has the eyes but cannot see, Ears, doesn't hear, feet, but if you exchange the source of life for something that has no life in and of itself, then you cut yourself off from the spring of life and you ultimately will find yourself to be withering and dying and decaying. Rather than moving onward and upward in your formation of Christ's likeness and experiencing the joy of salvation, you will ultimately be withering and decaying and rotting from the inside out because you're giving glory to something that doesn't deserve glory rather than giving glory to the one who deserves glory. Right? Instead of having a wellspring of life of living water bubbling over within you, it'll become like a cesspool. Right? And I've seen both of those things over the course of my life. I've seen beautiful, clear mountain streams, spring-fed streams, and I have seen sewage ponds that have that green, scummy coat on top where nothing can survive because of the mm, stuff in them and the chemicals used to treat that stuff that is within them. And whenever you exchange the source of life for things that are lifeless, you become like a cesspool rather than an experience of a spring in a clear mountain stream. When you exchange the glory to lesser gods, you look for substance, worth, weight, and security in anything that can be taken away from you. Listen, church, you'll never be on stable footing. We have to guard ourselves from giving glory to lesser gods. If our lives are all about him, if our church is to be all about him, then we have to guard ourselves against that. And it leads me to my third point. How then do we go about giving glory to the one who is worthy of it? In Psalm verses 9 to 11, the psalmist says to all of Israel, from the priests, the house of Aaron, to the people, right, and to you and I, right, to trust in the Lord. How do you give glory to God? How do you show Him to be worthy of all worth, all weight, all significance, all greatness and grandeur and majesty? How do you show Him to be that in your life? You do so by trusting in Him. Because the psalmist says, He is your help and He is your shield. That word help in the old testament it literally referred to divine assistance and it oftentimes it showed up in reference to a battle that was taking place in other words God showed up to help and fight for his people as he directed them as he led them listen your idols will never show up to fight for you But whenever you need them, what they will do is they will turn their back on you and abandon you in a moment's notice. But the psalmist says, it is God who shows up to fight like He did at Jericho. Without the people lifting a finger and the walls come tumbling down. God is the One who gives divine assistance. And He is their shield. And that word literally in the Old Testament means, guess what? A shield. Okay? So God not only signs Himself up in covenant-keeping love to fight on behalf of His people, but to defend them from their enemies. So offensively, He's going to war, going to battle for the sake of His covenant people, and defensively, He's setting up Walls and partitions and shields to protect them from the advances of those who would want to overthrow them. And so he says, Israel, the priests, the house of Aaron, all you people, including me, including you, including us, trust in the Lord. He's the only one who's going to fight for you, and he is the only one who is going to defend you. So trust in His steadfast love. That steadfast love that was exhibited all throughout the Old Testament. It was exhibited at the cross most fully and finally and freely. Trust in His faithfulness that He is a God who is stable. He is a God who is faithful. He is a God who is steady. Trust in His sovereignty that He will do as He pleases. He will direct the affairs of human history, turn hearts toward the accomplishment of His purposes. All of those truths give me such great, great, great confidence that I can depend on Him. Because He's pledged His love for me. He's demonstrated His faithfulness to me. And I know He can direct anything for my good. So church, whenever the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to your reputation, to your name, to your renown, give the glory. Think about this. He's saying, listen, God's reputation is one who's full of steadfast love compared to our reputation whose love may last a week. (laughs) Sometimes a day we don't deserve glory he does god's reputation as one who is faithful as paul says in first timothy in despite our faithlessness god continues to be faithful we don't deserve glory he does we who we're not little sovereigns running around directing the affairs of human history or even our lives and yet God is overseeing, superintending, and directing everything. So not to me, and not to you, give glory, but to Him. And the way that we do that is not by trusting in ourselves, not by trusting in what we can accomplish, not by trusting in what would make us impressive, but trusting in Him to fulfill His purposes because He has pledged His love and demonstrated His faithfulness. And I could tell you story after story about how God has shown His faithfulness to this church. (laughs) Some of you have walked that road with us and you could tell the stories about how God has demonstrated His faithfulness to this church. So at the end of the day, we say, church, it's not about us. This next five initiative, it's not about us. It's about God and it's about his glory amongst in this community and among the nations. It's about his reputation, his renown. That's what it's about. And so we're not trusting in ourselves. Listen, church, we're not trusting in a particular location. Right? We're not trusting in a particular architectural style of a building. We're not tru- we, we cannot trust in those things. Why? Because those things will never show up and fight for us. We cannot trust in our influence in this community because our influence could wither and die, but God will still fight for us. We cannot trust in the impressiveness of our ministry scope and reach Or of any building that we might construct. Because that impressiveness will turn its back on us the moment we need it. But God will fight and defend. So we should not trust in a piece of dirt somewhere out there. We're looking for one, but we can't place our trust in it. We cannot trust in a building or a staff person, please do not put your trust in Me. (laughs) I was not designed by God to bear that weight. Put your trust in Him. So as we come today to make whatever commitment the Lord has burdened our heart with, We do so taking a step of faith, believing it is the Lord who directs our affairs, believing it is the Lord who has pledged His love to us and demonstrated that for us in Christ. And it is the Lord who has been faithful to us in the past in the same way that He was to Israel. And we trust He's going to be faithful to us as we step into the future. And we come placing our trust in Him. So, after I pray, the band's gonna come and they're gonna lead us in song, but we wanna invite the members of this church who are ready to take that step of publicly committing themselves to what the, what the Lord has led us to. To place their trust in Him by coming forward and laying your commitment on the proverbial altar here. It's a stool and a basket, but you get the picture, right? You can lay your commitment card face down because nobody else needs to see this other than you and the Lord. And we'll have one person who's going to be processing all of these, right? And so, I, I don't want to know what you're committing to. That's between you and God. But we invite you to come and lay that face down in this basket as a public representation of saying, we're in, we're in. Trusting in the Lord for Him to provide. He's already begun to provide. Right? That's a marker of His faithfulness, church. Fifteen advance commitments of $217,000. He's already begun to provide, and I believe He'll continue to do so. The question is, will we continue to give Him the glory that only He is worthy of? Let's pray together. Father, today... We thank You for Your provision in Christ. In Christ alone. That it is not our next five offering. That it is not our ongoing support of ministries in this church financially. That it is nothing about what we bring and contribute that gives us standing before You. Would You undercut by Your Holy Spirit any notion of that heresy in our hearts. But as we set out to be used by You in this community to reach our neighbors, and to raise disciples, and to launch leaders into ministry context locally and globally, to mature stewards who are using their gifts well and stewarding the things that You've entrusted to them as faithful managers. And we're expanding our generosity. All God, that it would be moving in a direction not for our glory, but for Yours. That we would not be seen as impressive in this community, but that You would be. That we would not be seen as influential but that You would be. That we would not be seen as permanent here in the city of faith, but that Your work and Your activity throughout human history would be the only solid bedrock upon which we can build this church and upon which the people of this community can find hope. So we say this morning not to us, O Lord, Not to us, but to Your name, to Your renown, to Your reputation be the glory on this day. And God, may it be for every day that follows. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.